Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. This morning we are looking at the next letter in Revelation chapter 2. And as we're going through this, let me remind you that the message to these churches is something that we can apply as a church, but that we can also then apply as individuals. And so there's, there's different application points as we go through this. We saw the church at Ephesus the first week that they had lost their first love, but in, in the middle of that, even though they had lost their first love, they had all of these other good things that they were doing. I mean, they had all this hard work and their dedication to truth and dedication to holiness. But Christ looked at them and said, I, I know you're doing all these good things, but you're doing it out of the wrong motivation. It's not motivated by a love for me. The church we looked at last week, the church of Smyrna, was facing intense persecution. If you remember, if you were here last week, they were doing a lot of things well, but they were acting in fear. And so the message that Christ gives them literally is stop being afraid, stop living in fear, be this kind of church and this kind of people that when persecution comes and when threats comes and when all these things come, that you're willing to stand up and you're willing to, to kind of be faithful in the midst of all that. We talked about what that persecution looks like and how you and I, even though we may not be facing being burned alive at the stake, that we face opposition and we face those different kinds of things and we have to be willing to stand up. The message this morning is about the church at Pergamum. Let me go ahead and read this. You should be open to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 12. Revelation 2 starting in verse 12. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. The one who has the sharp double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan lives. But... I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Just thinking about that verse 16, about Christ coming and intentionally and deliberately fighting against us is a scary thought. I mean, if we really think about that, if Christ coming and fighting against any one of us, that, that should wake us up. That, that should get our attention this morning. But this message to the church of Pergamum is a message that has both positive and negatives to it. There's both good and there's bad, as with most of the churches here, which means there's much that we can learn, much that we can apply. And if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, you'll see several truths that I want us to take home this morning. You'll see on the screen the title of the message this morning specifically is is a message about standing up and standing out. The call in this letter really is for you and I as believers in Christ to stand up and to stand out. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, as we go through these several points this morning, you're going to understand what that means and how that can be applied in our lives. If you're taking notes, here's number one. First thing that we have to understand is that Christ knows about the culture in which you live. Christ knows about the culture in which you live. Look back with me, if you will, at verse number 13. Revelation 2, verse number 13. Christ says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And then down at the very end of the verse, this culture, this 
area where they are living, Pergamum, is described as where Satan lives. This was the culture. When Christ looked at them, he looked at their culture, he looked at the society, he says, I understand what you're dealing with. I, I understand that what you are facing is really satanic in a sense. This is where Satan's throne is. This is where Satan lives. In Pergamum, there was an altar to Zeus. It was very public. It was in the sit, sit, center of the town. There were other temples. There were cults. There were sacrifices made to these different gods and sacrifices made to these different, these different, in these different temples. But perhaps the most significant thing that they faced in Pergamum was what was known as the imperial cult. The imperial cult. We touched on this a little bit last week, but the imperial cult was a political and religious system where everyone in that area was required to bow down and worship the emperor of Rome. And worship him, not just to give him homage, but to really worship him as a divine being, as an incarnation of God. And this, this practice was practiced all throughout the region. It's the reason we saw it last week in Ephesus. It's the reason why we see it again this week. But it reached its height under the emperor Domitian. He actually demanded that when people bowed down and worshipped him, that they referred to him, the emperor, as their lord and their god. So when he said, when you bow down and worship me, the emperor of Rome, I want you to call me your Lord and your God. Well, this created a problem for Christians. You, you can imagine why, right? In their mind, there's only one Lord and there's only one God. I mean, what were they to do when the emperor says, you bow down and you worship me as the Lord and God? They built temples in honor of the emperor. They had worship events that were on the calendar throughout the year where they would come together. And these events would include idolatrous and immoral activities that were completely and clearly forbidden in scripture. This imperial cult was structured in a way that it was, it was actually designed to permeate culture and designed to permeate all aspects of society. And there was allegiances made with the emperor and different uh, trade guilds and to where you could not go anywhere in the city and be a part of anything that the city was doing without seeing this imperial cult kind of wrapped it or wrapped around it. I mean, you could not go shopping. You could not do any form of entertainment without this being part of what was taking place. This was the culture, an idolatrous and immoral culture. This was not just something that took place under the umbrella of culture, but this was the very description of their culture and of their society. So when Christ looked at this culture, when Christ looked at this society, his conclusion was, this is the house of Satan. I mean, think about that kind of, that kind of description. It was a kind of culture where this church was called to minister. And I can imagine as this church was in this culture and they were trying to minister and trying to live and trying to operate, that it became very frustrating. I mean, they could not be a part of anything without becoming frustrated with, with, the, with the imperial cult kind of taking over. And I, I'm sure at times it seemed like that God had forgotten about them. But in writing this, Christ says, I know where you live. And in essence, he's saying, I know all about your culture. And I know all about your society. I know all about what you're facing. 
God had not forgotten them. He did not lose sight of them. He knew about the immorality they were facing. And he knew about the satanic influences. And he knew about the imperial cult. And he knew about the altar of Zeus. And he knew about the sacrifices, the, immor- the immorality. and the, uh, He knew about all of it. And he writes to them and says, listen, I know where you are. I know the culture. I know the society. I have not forgotten about you. And you have not been placed here by accident. See, we can get to the place as a church where we sit back and assume that we're just here to be a church and that God's really forgotten all about us. And we can look at the society and the culture around us and we can say, well, you know, maybe God's forgotten what things are really like. I mean, maybe God doesn't really know how hard it is to be a biblical church here. Can I remind us that God has not forgotten? In fact, it is when it is the darkest that the light of our testimony and the light of our church shines the brightest and becomes the most visible. So as a church, when we're looking at culture and we're looking at society and we see how dark everything is and we see the sin that has kind of permeated every aspect of our society, and it has. When we see that, we can think, well, God, why do you have us here? We have to be reminded that he has not forgotten about us. And not only has, does he know that we're here, he has placed us here. He knows about the culture in which we live. Number two, another truth is that your environment, the culture and the society, your environment does not have to dictate your level of faithfulness. Look at verse 13 again. It says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Notice this next phrase. And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Pause there for a second. So God says, I know about your culture, and I know about the society, and I know about how wicked everything is, and I know about how everyone's being pressured to bow down and worship the emperor and call him Lord and call him God. I know about all that, but I praise you or I commend you because you have held fast to my name. You know what he's basically saying to them? The culture around you did not dictate your level of faithfulness. The culture and the society, even though it was wicked and even though it was sinful, in this area of your life, in this area of your ministry, it did not dictate your level of faithfulness, which is a reminder to us. We can exist in the most wicked and the most perverse and the most hostile area in the world, wherever that may be. Churches exist and Christians exist, but the culture and the society and the environment where they live does not have to dictate their level of faithfulness. Sometimes we think, well... If a church lives in a wicked area or in a sinful area, if they're, if they're living in that area, well, they, certainly they're going to have to adopt some of that to be able to reach the culture. And Christ says, no, no. The culture in which you live and the society in which you live does not have to dictate your faithfulness. In fact, the most effective churches and the most effective witness are those who stand up in the middle of, of that wicked society and that wicked culture and say, I will be faithful to God regardless of what anyone else around me does. It's challenging. It's difficult. But our surroundings does not have to dictate our level of faithfulness. Your spiritual life, your spiritual growth, your spiritual health, your testimony, your faithfulness, none of that is contingent upon what is happening in culture. In fact, if you are using our sinful culture and our sinful society as an excuse for not living for God, then that is a sign that you are too focused on culture and not focused enough on Christ. It's about where you're focused. 
So you can live in the middle of a sinful culture and focus on Christ and pursue Christ and live for Christ. And that should be our aim. Number three, there is a difference in claiming the name of Christ and holding fast to the name of Christ. I just want to just mention this briefly. Look at verse 13 again. His praise of them in verse 13 is that you are holding on to my name. And did not deny your faith in me. That little phrase, holding on to my name, is very intentional. It's a clinging to. It means to embrace. It means to run to, to pursue, to cling to, to hold on to. And then not let anything drag us away from that. Christ says this church was holding on to the name of Christ. I just want to mention there is a difference between holding fast to the name of Christ, clinging to the name of Christ, embracing the name of Christ, and casually claiming the name of Christ. You say, what does it mean to hold on to the name of Christ? What does it mean to cling to the name of Christ? Well, I think the answer to that is seen in that very next phrase. What does it mean to hold on to the name of Christ? It means to not deny your faith in him. Even when there's persecution, even when there's hostility, we cling to the name of Christ. They demonstrated this in word. They demonstrated this in deed. Here's, here's the point I want to make in this point. There is a difference between simply claiming the name of Christ, calling yourself a Christian, and holding fast to the name of Christ. Anyone can stand up and claim the name of Christ. Anyone can stand up and call themselves a Christian. And in fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name and then i will announce to them i never knew you when christ looked at this church and the persecution they were facing and we'll see the persecution in just a moment he says in the middle of that sinful culture and that wicked culture in the midst of the persecution they did not simply claim up and say hey i'm a christian In the midst of all of that, they pursued with aggression and clung to the name of Christ to the point that when the persecution came and the sinfulness of the society came, they did not deny their faith. Which means in how they lived and how they talked, they proclaimed the name of Christ. They did not back down. They did not shy away. They hung boldly to their faith. And they said, we do not care who knows it. We don't care what happens. We belong to Christ. That is a whole lot different than simply standing up and saying, I'm a Christian. And then as soon as one bad thing happens, turning around and running away from it because all of a sudden it's become a little difficult. This church clung to the name of Christ. These believers clung to the name of Christ. They pursued Christ. They boldly proclaimed Christ. They lived for Christ. It was clear that they did not deny Christ in how, in anything that they did. Now listen, as a church, things will happen. And as believers, things will happen that will challenge your faith. There are things that will happen that will rock your world, so to speak. There are things that will happen where it will seem like the bottom has dropped out. It will seem like God has forgotten where you are. It will seem like God is silent. And in those times, your faith is proven. See, in those times, you have to run to Christ and cling to Christ and hold on to the name of Christ. It is in those situations that the reality of your faith and the genuineness of your faith is proven. 
See, don't simply claim the name of Christ and say, I'm a Christian and go through the motions of Christianity as long as it's easy and as long as it's convenient and as long as it's comfortable. That is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is clinging to the name of Christ. And when everything is torn apart, you cling to the name of Christ because you know he is your one defense and that he is your righteousness. And you have no hope apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Cling to the name of Christ. Number four. This is so important. Obedience in one area does not excuse, excuse disobedience in other areas. I'm trying to get our boys to understand this. They're not here right now, so I can talk about them. Y'all don't tell them. So, maybe this is true with all children. I don't know. But with mine, anyway, if you ask them why they didn't do one thing that you told them to do, their lead-in answer is, well, I did this. So, for instance, the other day I told Nathan, clean your room and straighten up the garage. So I went in, into his room. It had not been cleaned. Nathan, why didn't you clean your room? Well, I cleaned the garage. Obedience in one area does not excuse disobedience in another area. Here's what we learn. Verse 13 is positive about this church, but it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there. Notice that phrase, some there. So this was not all of the people in the church. This was not even necessarily the majority of the church. It was some in the church who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Let's, let's just pause here for a second. Here's what we learned just from a kind of a, Overhead view of this. Verse 13, they were holding fast to the name of Christ in the midst, in the midst of an ungodly culture. They were clinging to the name of Christ. They did not deny their faith. In the very next verse, they were allowing people into the church who had false doctrine and immoral doctrine. So how can both of those things be true? Well, one thing we learned from this is just because you're faithful in one area is no guarantee that you're going to be faithful in another area. And just because you're obedient in one area is no guarantee that you're going to be, be obedient in another area. And if we think that because we're obedient in one area that Christ is going to ignore our disobedience in another area, we are mistaken. Our obedience in one area does not excuse our disobedience in another area. So you may look at one area of your life and say, God's proud of me right here. I mean, if God was here, he'd be patting me on the back because I am doing good. And we think because he is proud of us right here that he is simply going to turn a blind eye to the sin in the other areas of our life. You are wrong. You are mistaken. We may have... All good areas in our life, faithful in all areas, but we may have this one area right over here where we are privately indulging in this sin. And we say, God, look at all of these other areas. Look how faithful I am and I give and I serve and I'm involved and look at all these good things. I'm good to my family. Look at all these good things. And God's over here saying, I praise you and I commend you for that. But let's talk about this. Let's talk about this corner. Let's talk about this little box here that no one else knows about except you and me. See, we think 
well, God's just going to ignore this because he's happy with all this other obedience. Is he happy with this other obedience? Yes. But is he going to excuse this disobedience? No. And what I know about all of us in here, because we are all human and we are all sinners, is we all have a box. Don't we? You all have a box. Just go ahead and admit it. So the question is, what is the, the box? I mean, you may be looking in, in your mind right now, you're thinking about all the good things you're doing. Let me tell you something. God is commending you for all of the good things that you're doing, but he is not going to simply ignore the sin in this one area of your life because of all of the other good that you're doing. This church facing persecution, facing a hostile, sinful culture, holding fast to the name of Christ, did not deny their faith in Christ. He says, but I've got a couple things against you. What is your box this morning that you are not wanting Christ to see? See, the call for this area of your life down in the next couple of verses is what the call has always been, is to repent. So yes, you have all of these other good things that you've done and all these other areas that you're faithful and all these other areas that you're obedient. But the call about this one area in your life where you don't want anybody else to know about, this one area that you don't want to submit to God and this one area that you're holding on to control. Christ is looking at you this morning and says, I see all the good and I praise all the good and I commend you for all the good. But in this one area, I'm calling you to repent. He's not going to ignore the sin in that one area of your life simply because you're faithful and obedience in other areas of your life. And we are just like my two kids. We think that he's simply going to ignore it. And we, when we feel that conviction, when Christ kind of calls us out on it, you know what our first response is? But God, I'm, I, was, well, I went to church this week. We start calling out all the areas where we're faithful and all the areas where we're obedient. Christ says, hold up. What about that? See, the call this morning in that area of your life is to repent in verse 16. The biblical response to the recognition of sin in your life. Whatever sin it is, wherever it may be in your life, the call is always to repent. And some of you this morning, you listening? Some of you this morning may have a box right now in your life. And you need to repent. And the call to you from Christ this morning is to repent. Number five. Error will never be suppressed by compromising with it. Let me explain this point. Error will never be suppressed or kind of pushed down by compromising with it. Here's what's interesting about this. Verse 14, I already kind of mentioned this in passing, but this church, when Christ is writing to this, he says, I have a few things against you. He said, there are some there. He said, there's a few people in your church that are holding on to this teaching, holding on to this false doctrine. The doctrine of um, Balaam, this teaching of Balaam, you can read all about it in Numbers 22 through 24. We're not going to take the time to read it all this morning, but if you're interested in what that is, it's pretty interesting. The king of of um, the, the enemy of Israel was wanting to destroy them. He hired this guy to kind of cast a curse on them. When that failed, this guy who had been hired to cast a curse on them said, hey, I've got another idea. Let's throw a big party and we'll make it an immoral party and an idolatrous party. And the Israelites will all give into that and then God will judge them. And that's exactly what happened. That's the nutshell of Numbers 22 through 24. But read it for yourself. 
And then the teaching of the Nicolaitans was a mixture of idolatry and immorality again. So Christ writes to them, he says, listen, I know this isn't your whole church, but there's some there who hold to this. There's some there who are allowing this to take place. There's some there who are kind of trying to creep this into the church. Here's what we must realize. The leaders of this church, the leaders of this church at Pergamum, they were not the ones guilty of the sin. The leaders of the church at Pergamum were not the ones who had had been guilty of this false teaching or of this immorality. You know what they were guilty of? Not dealing with it. They allowed it. And Christ is writing this letter to the leaders of this church and said, there is a problem and I have a problem with your church because you have allowed some to follow this immoral and idolatrous teaching. See, the idea that we can simply ignore error, that we can sweep it under the rug and it's simply going to go away is false. The idea that we can kind of compromise with error and we can kind of allow it to sneak in and it's going to be okay. And maybe if we just don't deal with this error, maybe we don't deal with this sin, it'll just disappear. That is never the way it works. Error must always be addressed. Christ says, deal with it. Error will never be suppressed. It will never be pushed down. It will never be kicked out by compromising with it. Number six. Staying faithful to Jesus is directly tied to publicly standing on truth. One part of verse 13 we've skipped over. I want to go back to it now. He says, you're holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. How do we know that Antipas publicly took a stand on truth? He was killed for it. It's kind of public. So in one phrase, Antipas is is killed because of his faith. And throughout this text, we see the emphasis on this faithfulness. This, This faithfulness is praised. This public nature is clearly seen. One of the flaws of American Christianity is that many people think that it is a private Christianity. And we take the aspect of we have a personal Savior, and we do have a personal Savior. But then we take that idea and say, I have a personal Savior, therefore I have a personal or a private faith. I have a personal savior, therefore I have a private faith. You know, the Bible never presents our Christian faith as a private matter. Yes, we have a personal savior, but our faith is public. Throughout history, people have given their lives because of their faith. Was it because they were simply living it privately? You think they died because they prayed silently before they ate breakfast? I mean, why did they die? They were bold with their faith. They lived for Christ. They proclaimed Christ. They honored Christ. They worshipped Christ. They told other people about Christ. Their faith was lived publicly. And throughout all of these letters, what we see is what is being praised is the public living of faith and the public holding fast to Christ's name. And yes, we see people losing their lives because they say, I will stand up for Christ and I will live my faith, even though it means hostility will come and those people will attack me. It does not matter because while I have a personal savior, I have a very public faith and I want everyone to know that Christ saved me and because I know how Christ saved me and what I deserve. 
served apart from Christ. I want other people to know about that exact same Christ. The idea that we can live a private Christianity is never seen in Scripture. The, the idea that we can have this private faith and we go into our house and we pray and we read our Bible, then we exit our house and we never have to live like Christ is real is not biblical Christianity. So yes, we have this personal Savior. And yes, we have these private acts of prayer and Bible reading and things that we do in the privacy of our home. But those private things then compel us to go out publicly and live for Christ and proclaim the name of Christ. Staying faithful to Jesus demands that we publicly stand on truth. And I would add in lovingly stand on truth. Here's number seven. Whose judgment do you fear? I want to go back up to verse 12 now. I know we're kind of jumping around. Let's look back up at verse 12. Verse 12 says this. Write to the angel of the church at Pergamum. The one who has the sharp double-edged sword says. Let's pause there. The picture of Christ with a sharp double-edged sword is a picture of judgment. And all throughout the book of Revelation, this sharp double-edged sword that's associated with Christ is always a picture of judgment. So when I ask the question, whose judgment do you fear, here's what I mean. Christ is looking at this church at Pergamum, and he says, I am a God of judgment. And as I look at this church, there's some good things, but there's these areas in your life where you have to fix. And if there's these areas of sin, there's these areas of false teaching that's kind of creeping in. You have to deal with that. So the question I have is, why would this church be willing to tolerate this sin and be willing to tolerate this false doctrine coming in? I mean, isn't that a fair question? I mean, why would they hold fast in one area and another area let the sin creep in? Well, in one sense, saying no to those who are holding the false teaching, what, what could possibly happen with that? Any ideas? Yeah, they could leave. They could get mad. In their own way, if I say no to this false teaching, if I say no to these people, if I say no, if I call this out as error in the sin, then there's going to be some kind of judgment from them. I mean, if I take a stand on truth, then there will be people who look at me and who judge me. There will be consequences. So when I say, whose judgment do you fear? Here's what you have to understand. When you take a stand on truth, you are saying no to error and no to sin. And there will be people who will look at that and that will not make sense to them. And they will look back at you and they will judge you and they will criticize you. And you will face opposition and criticism because of that. And you can look at that and you can allow the fear of that to ignore the judgment of Christ. Or you can allow the reality of the judgment of Christ to cause you to take a stand and say, I don't care what anyone else says i will do what christ has called me to do whose judgment do you fear this morning because we always have that option i mean we're always standing there with what if i do what god has called me to do then there will be other people who look at me and will press me and will attack and if i do what they want me to do then i'm offending a holy righteous god who do we care about i mean that's where the bible says it is better to obey god rather than men and so when we read in verse 12 that Christ is a Christ of judgment, it is a reminder that we should fear his judgment far more than anyone else's. In closing, if we look back over this passage of scripture, 
Looking in verse 13, we see the praise. In verse 14, we see the box of sin, so to speak, that they were hiding, that they were hoping that they could get away with, that Christ calls them out on. We see the call in verse 16, Therefore repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, this, this is a call, really, to stand up and stand out. How many of you have ever heard the name Richard Wormbrand? Any of you ever heard that? A few of you. I was reading about Richard Wormbrand this morning, not this morning, this past week. He was the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. I'm sure more of you have heard of Voice of the Martyrs. He was a pastor teacher in a communist-controlled area who was arrested multiple times. In fact, he was told that you could not have any kind of Sunday school classes, you cannot teach the Bible, and he would still go out, and as the train with soldiers would be going by, they would throw Bibles into the open windows of the train so that the soldiers could have copies of God's Word. And when it, the oppression got really severe, they would kind of form these underground churches, and they would go, and they would meet, and they would worship, and they would sing, and they would pray, and they would have these these worship gatherings, they would continue to have church even though it was against the law. And they would have, during the week, times of Bible study, even though they knew the threat and the danger. And one day, he was on his way to one of these underground worship services when he was arrested by the secret police. And the secret police took him, and they marked him and labeled him as Prisoner One. And they threw him in prison and kept him in prison for a number of years. And they eventually released him and then... A couple years later, he was arrested again. But each of these times, he was severely tortured. In fact, he wrote a biography of his life entitled Tortured for Christ. Another book about his life is A Ransom for Wormbrand. Two books that kind of tell the story of his life. But he went through severe torture simply because he wanted to worship Christ. And there's times in his life where he could have taken a back seat and said, you know what? We can, I can read the Bible in the privacy of my home and nobody will care. And I can pray in the privacy of my home and nobody will care. But what he understood is what this passage is teaching is that our faith is not to be, is not a secret that we are to protect. Christ is not a secret that we protect. It is not a truth that we hoard. The message of Christ is a message that is to be spread and it is a message that is to be communicated. And so Wormbrand and his wife, who was also arrested on several occasions, committed their lives simply to saying, we will stand up and we will stand out and we will communicate Christ. And if it means that we are arrested, then we are arrested. If it means that we are tortured, then we are tortured. But we will live for Christ because we understand that it is better to serve God than serve men. It is better to fear God than it is to fear men. And he had a time in his life between those first two imprisonments. After his first imprisonment, he had been in prison, he had been tortured for several years, he was released. What would you have done? I mean, if you'd have been in prison, you'd have been tortured, starved, and now you're released. And as you're released, you're told, do nothing else in the name of Christ. And you have went through all of this pain and all of this agony and all of this torture and all of this separation from your family. How would you respond? See, your beliefs in that moment dictate your response. See, Wormbrand looked at that and he said, and him and his wife talked about it, and said, we cannot do anything but serve Christ. 
And so that very next day, they began establishing the underground church again, and he was eventually again arrested. But they were committed to stand up and to stand out. They said, it doesn't matter what it costs us, it doesn't matter what we do, but we will live for Christ. And what I'm asking you to do this morning is to make that same kind of commitment. That same kind of commitment to where you say, I will do what Christ wants me to do. And so the application for you this morning may be a little different. Some of you, it may mean being bold with your faith and living a public faith when other people see you. That you say, I fear Christ more than I fear others. And I don't care what others say. That I will live my faith so that others can see it. And some of you may need to commit to that this morning. But some of you may need to deal with this box. Some of you may need to deal with this area right here. In your mind, you have all these good areas, but Christ is calling you this morning to repent of this. I don't know what it is. I don't know what Christ is calling you to repent of in your life. Whatever it is, you need to repent. I'm going to have John Mark come on up. We all stand with me this morning. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.